Hello friends and welcome back. After what feels like a very, very long time, I, I've been dusting the role-playing game room. Yes, this is a room in which we talk about role-playing games and with we, I mean I am Paco Garcia and I am in the company of the first lady of role-playing podcasting. I'm Vicky Beaver. Oh, I was talking about James, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, just for that, I'm going to be bitchy all day. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, say your hey, name, Jim, I'm just because. Normal. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, this is Jim Pinto. Yay. Now we know Yay. who you are. Yeah. <laughs> is, is this their first time tuning in? Is this somebody's first time? Oh, friends, if this is your first time, please um, don't be scared. We are pretty harmless, usually. And we actually talk some sense from time to time, at least Vicky does. Uh, Jim and I, we're just here for the ride. And today we're going to be talking about something that a lot of people genuinely don't pay a lot of attention to. And it can make a huge, huge difference to your game when, when you bring people in, when you want to create a really special experience. And we're talking about atmosphere around the table. How do you create how do you enhance that? Now, of course, Halloween is approaching. I'm hoping to have this uh, episode uh, published on the 30th of October so you can listen to this and take some note so your Halloween games can be uber spooky. Uh, unless you're me. <laughs> yes, uh, unless you're me, in which case you're evil and you're scaring children. But that's fine. <laughs> so... Uh, let's, Vicky, you, you suggested this topic, so why don't you take it away? Okay, well, I'll, I'll start, but I certainly don't want to be the only one throwing out ideas here. So, uh, one of the first things that I started playing with uh, in providing this sort of atmosphere to the game was music. Uh, we've been doing a lot of fantasy gaming, and regardless of who was jamming, uh, every other time it was actually being held at my house, so I started putting on uh, music that felt like it wasn't something that was going on in the, the modern day because our old fantasy was uh, more or less you know, medieval England kind of era and setting. So I would do things that uh, largely were new age because that was what I had on hand at the time. And it did kind of feel other, you know, other than... United States of America in Texas. So it, it did make it feel like it was a, a different kind of time. It wasn't period music um, because I didn't have that. Now, if I were to go back, I would probably try to do something that sounded a little renaissance -y if we were doing uh, a, a setting where that would be an appropriate kind of music to hear. So music, I feel, is something that can definitely enhance your game. Uh, played modestly you don't want it so loud that people can't hear and you don't want battle sounding music like something from gladiator when you're doing intrigue hmm. <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense so matching you know kind of trying to match up a little bit your music to what kind of uh, genre it is that you are using for your game setting so that that's one of the first things i found um what about you guys yeah. you, do you do any music or have you done any music or do you I, I've oh, done no. music. I've done background music in gaming forever since the '90s. Even if it's not, I'm not looking for a spooky game or a thematic holiday game or whatever it is that you're trying to capture. I think 
background music can help focus everybody on the table. Um, reducing the lighting is another way to get everybody to focus on the table. I like um, that idea. I've played with lots of people that get distracted easily, and they don't. They don't. I don't keep them around very long. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, you've only got a limited window, and nowadays I think you've only got a three-hour window to game. You don't even have the four and five and six-hour window that we used to have to game. So that window keeps getting smaller and smaller the older we get, and the more complicated modern life gets. I think you have an obligation, no matter what kind of gaming you're doing, to find ways to get everybody to. Get all your gabbing out in the first 30 minutes. Okay, right. everybody got the giggles. Everybody get your giggles out of the way. Okay, now it's time to play. Um, and that sounds draconian, and I don't mean for it to be, but I think you have a social contract. You have an obligation to sit down and enjoy that thing together. If you were going camping and you were supposed to be at the campsite at noon and somebody drags their ass and they don't get there until 4 in the afternoon, that person's the problem right with setting up the camp and it's the same thing with any hobby any activity that you're you're in and so gaming needs to at least hear to some sort of agreement that hey we're all here and mood music and lighting those are just two of the most basic components i think you can use to get everybody in the right mood to game and then of course if you want it to be scary you're going to, want to use right you don't want to use knott's berry farm sound effects but a band like midnight syndicate or uh, the yeah. Ex Machina background music that I found years ago. I'll try to figure out his name while we're talking. Um, but I used to use the Ex Machina. It's about an hour and a half long, and it's just this awesome mood music in the background that that doesn't have any battle sounds or sound effects, but it's constantly moving around and changing so that nobody gets bored. Yeah, you mentioned Midnight Syndicate, and one of the things that I love about their music is that they do have a wide variety of horror-themed soundtrack they you know if you if you have three different cds of theirs they don't all sound just alike be even though they are all the same uh, theme they're definitely horror i i, I talked to the folks uh, within the last uh, couple of gen cons about you know so do you think you'll ever be one that's fantasy uh, but their thing really is mostly horror which is great for uh, what you know for doing games that are horror oriented whether you're doing a special halloween theme or not and for folks who are listening, if you if you haven't been to Gen Con, if you've gone to a Halloween store, there's an excellent chance that some of the music that's being played is Midnight Syndicate's uh, horror song and songs and sounds. So I definitely agree. They're they're a great one. They've got I think something like nine or ten CDs now. I, I have them all, so <laughs> so I think there's about ten. I but they're definitely great for horror. Now you mentioned. Uh, another one, what kind of genre would you play that with? Is that more fantasy or is that also horror? Or yeah, I think I think it's everything, right? It's called Duce Machinats sure. by Paul Schultz. I just sent okay. you guys the link. Um, Paul Schultz does electronica music, but not ridiculous. He's a really good composer and he, he, all of his stuff is different. But I stumbled upon this album actually in college. That's how old it is. And I was looking for it to use for mood music. And to this day, I'm still not sick of it um, for background music for games. That's pretty um, cool. Yeah. So, it, it, oh, go ahead. I was going to, one of the other things I've done is use movie soundtrack music. Hmm. And that's worked really well. Um, if you, many of the things that you have out there, like uh, soundtracks that are for, uh, say, some of the Star Trek uh, movies. You actually can you can use those well for sci-fi. You know, whatever the movie is, 
a lot of times it works really well for the same genre, but in RPGs. So if you, you know, if, even if you don't know of a specific one that's for gaming or that's for mood music, so to speak, soundtracks have worked really well for me. Paco, have you, uh, have you done any of that? use uh, soundtracks or anything like that we use uh, music very seldom in my gaming group um, because it, it takes a fair length of time to to prepare and we don't have it however the one thing that we have used from time to time and it works like an absolute dream is cinemix uh it's, what is it's that? cinemix is is an online radio station you can listen to it completely free and the only thing they play is soundtracks Cinemix is that, it, how, how is that spelled so I know how to find it? <laughs> C-I-N-E-M-I-X. Okay, neat. Um, yeah, it's important when we're saying soundtracks that we move mean movie scores and not the soundtrack actually with, you know, lyrics and things like that. The no, so, be... so sometimes they play a few with lyrics, but it's very, very seldom. They tend to play an awful lot of science fiction and fantasy movies as well. So things on yeah. superhero, you know, they play a lot. The the soundtrack of Man of Steel. Uh, and from time to time, it's, it's really incredible that you're hearing this music. That's, it is incredible, absolutely wonderful, wonderful music. Uh, and you take a look at the title. You can you can see the title of the movie that they're, they're playing, and you think, really, that music comes from that horrible, disgusting film. Right, right. <laughs> well, there's also there's also the uh, soundtracks that go to video games. That sometimes those come on. I, I use uh, Pandora uh, a lot of times, and uh, when I'm writing and editing, that's often in the background. And I see things come out like Skyrim. Hmm. Uh, and some of the music is really fantastic if, well, it, if it's being played for video games and it, it, it makes great background music for you know, other games as well. Absolutely. I mean, in, in particular, I think uh, that there is a composer, video game music composer, uh, the, the guy who composed the music for Skyrim and so, so many other video games called Jeremy Soleil. He is absolutely incredible he's uh he's a genius that man is every single soundtrack he's created uh the skyrim uh baldur's gate he did as well he, he's done tons and tons and tons of video games and every single one of them is a masterpiece everyone well that's very cool we, we had we've talked a lot about music i uh, yeah but we there's been a couple of brief mentions of lighting uh, I'll share briefly one thing I did uh, to really set atmosphere uh, for one game. It was actually a, uh, it was not so much an RPG. I had thrown a surprise birthday party for my husband's 40th, and he had no idea what was going on. Uh, but what I did was kind of marry the idea of a role-playing game with a murder mystery dinner. Uh, because a lot of our friends knew, they knew we played role-playing games, but they didn't know what that meant. Um, so we had people coming over who were not necessarily gamers, as well as a few who were. So I had this sort of uh, sort of RPG meets murder mystery dinner going on. And one of the things I did to set atmosphere, aside of the fact of him having no idea that there were you know, 12 people in our house hiding, uh, <laughs> was to have the lights out. And... When we came in, and of course, you know, everybody all surprised, everybody had their parts. Um, I didn't ask anybody to dress up. Like I said, a lot of people were not gamers. Um, but 
we kept the lights out and we did it all by candlelight. Uh, just a note on that, if you're one of the groups that likes to indulge in alcoholic beverages while you are playing games, candlelight alcohol don't necessarily mix well. Mm. <laughs> so, depends on your depends on your friends. <laughs> uh, but that was one of the things that I did. I actually had it so that it was all by candlelight or oil lamp. And it was it went off really well. People who'd never played a role-playing game before suddenly found themselves immersed in this darkness and it was a fantasy setting uh and very improv and it was interesting because people who hadn't ever played before found it really neat had a lot of fun people who did play thought it was a cool difference from our normal game uh actually being in this sort of darkened area and everybody seeing shadows here and there which was kind of fun because every once in a while people saw shadows and if you know they thought somebody was behind them and they weren't. <laughs> so lighting, I think, really is a, a great uh, way to affect what the mood is like. So what other tri- tricks and tips uh, have folks got? Um, for me, it depends an awful lot on what kind of game you're playing. I like, because I am me, I like to get a little bit of atmosphere with food if I can. Um, there is a Spanish game called Gañanes. Um, a gañan is a scallywag. Okay. <laughs> if that means anything in American, does it? It does. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so that's what it is. It's basically a, a townie, a little boy townie. Uh, and, and you're meant to be playing like one of them. And part of the atmosphere is that you have to bring something that you would normally find in one of the Spanish deep Spain towns like a Spanish chorizo or a a country bread or a bottle of wine, something similar. Uh, And it is quite incredible how much when you're actually uh, drinking from a piporro, which is is una bota, uh, which is basically a leather bag where you put your your, your drink to remain cool, uh, food can make a huge, huge impact. Or on what you eat can make a huge impact in the atmosphere of, of your game. Yeah, In a Wicked Age actually tells you which food to bring to the game, which I thought oh, nice. was pretty clever. Um, and there's games, obviously there's drinking games that tell you what kind of alcohol you should have and whatnot, but I think that's outside the room what we're talking about. But I think, <laughs> I think, I think that that's sort of a new approach to games. I mean, I think we've been in a habit for so many years of just spitting out a book full of information without any discussion as to how that information is going to be implemented. Uh, Paco, we talked about this before, right? The amount of information before you even get into the meat of King for a Day when I was writing it Mm -hmm. was all about setting the mood for that book for even you as the game master so that you are experiencing something as you're reading it. And I think that that's just as important in the presentation of the book. And I, so I think a lot of what we're talking about, we can turn to quality books, too, that have done this well. right? Some of the vampire books, some of the old Wraith books did a really good job of opening with quality fiction. You can open with props. right? They're handed a letter to begin the session. And if that letter is handwritten or burnt or on parchment or whatever, there's all kinds of tactile ways of doing that. I've run – dozens and dozens of LARPs for conventions over the years and the amount of props that I used to bring to the convention for people for things for people to hold and hold on to and touch so they felt like they were part of the environment um, it got ridiculous toward the end I was bringing a couple of trunks full of stuff oh, man. Um, 
I don't have any of it anymore, right? I've moved so much. But um, there were there was a convention where it took us, I want to say, about three hours to prep the room for a game that was only going to last three hours. Wow. So oh, that's yeah. a that's a lot of prep work. But everything in the room, once they went in, everything in the room was something they could touch. The rule was though that they had to get a game master before they touched it because everything had an effect. Oh, that's neat. And so everywhere they went, it was supposed to feel like a tomb. Everywhere they went inside this big room, there was stuff. And so I think you can do the same thing in a role-playing game, right? Paizo tries to do those treasure cards, Mm -hmm. but I think it would be more interesting to just hand them a treasure, right? If they find a ring, hand them a piece of costume jewelry to hold on to throughout the game. And if they don't bring it to a game, it's gone forever, right? That's part of the responsibility of that holding on to that artifact or that that piece of treasure or just that precious item is that that prop represents their sort of foothold in the game that's a neat idea the, the most that i've uh, the most i've personally experienced were things like just something as, as innocuous as writing out the note on a piece of paper that's been crumpled up that is what you supposedly found in a crypt or in you know a ransacked home or something of that nature. I actually just you know having the GM hand you something that this is what you just literally found. And like I said, that's one that's a lot a lot less uh, effort to do, and but was still something that made it feel more like okay, cool, my character actually just found something. But I've also seen some neat things like coins, you know. You found this, you know, you found this unusual coin in, you know, when you were walking down the street, you know, and it had some sort of significance. So things that are small like that, even, uh, so if you don't have the time, the money or the inclination to go as big as something like what you've described, which to me sounds like so much fun as a player, it sounds like something that would be like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, but if as a GM, you just don't, you just can't go there. Uh, even just small things. Uh, we talked about Halloween. It's you know how many people are going to be pay- playing uh, you know, games that are pirate themed sometime in the near future, and how many times around Halloween do you find pirate coins? You know that you know right. it's chocolate covered, chocolate covered, uh, you know, or chocolate shaped coins that are wrapped in foil that depict what kind of coin it is. You know how fun is that? So things that are simple. Uh, and can be less, uh, you know, less costly than a lot of things that you know I've seen for sale for props for games. I those things could work well too. But I, I, te- I I've even used pesos and centavos, right, as foreign currency, so that nice. put them in a bag. I don't do that anymore because I've got so many coin props now. But in the past, I've used foreign coins that I could get my hands on put them in a bag and you shake it up and it makes the sound that it needs to make it when they open it it feels like coins nice Um, it's just another prop that you can use to sort of get in that mood i'm starting to sound really weird now because i don't think people realize this about me as a gamer that i actually get into the prop end of things Um, (laughs) uh, i don't think it's weird (laughs) well i mean i'm not i'm not that guy that shows up in costume ever so I would never do that to get into the mood, but I, I love props. I think props are, I, I think they're fantastic. I, I, I did a modern game once um, on the prop front. This was back in the day of 3.5 floppy disks. So yeah. that, that should tell you how long ago I ran this game, but you could do it with a thumb drive now. But what I did is I brought all the information they were going to need to decode on the disk. 
And then at a certain point in the game, they're like, okay, blah, 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 we get into the thing, you know, and then we we get the disc. And I just slide the disc across the table to a player. And he says, okay, what's on the disc? I said, I don't know (laughs) what's on the disc. (laughs) And he looks at it for a second. And then you can see that his, the light bulb goes off in his head and he, and it was at somebody else's house. So he runs out of the room, goes downstairs to his computer and he, (laughs) he plugs it in. Unfortunately, he didn't have a printer. So he's downstairs on his computer shouting up the hall, uh, shouting up the stairs at everybody, what he's reading. And so they had to deal with getting the information that way, which I thought added a lot to the problem. That was great. You you mentioned you know, kind of the real world uh, props. And one uh, I cannot remember who it was, but on a Savage Worlds uh, Google Plus group, somebody had shared some of the props that they were using. And I was pretty sure it's the Savage Worlds group. But anyway, they were they they themselves were, or they knew somebody who was a gun enthusiast. So they had spent shell, they spent had spent casings from their gun activities you know assuming completely legal uh, but they had spent cases so they actually use those on their table as i, I can't remember if they use those as props for um what they call bennies which is basically just a token you hand in during the game for savage right. worlds uh for different effects or if they had used them as you came across a crime scene and here's what you had found i can't remember exactly what how they used them but i remember them showing the pictures of it and i was thinking wow that's really cool <laughs> that's a neat way to do this and really make it feel you know, neat and different and like it's something's going on right now well, that was certainly the strength of Deadlands back in the day was that you had poker chips and poker cards at the table to sort of pull you into the environment. And right. I think if you did that for each of the Savage World environments, right, you use a different token for the Bennies. You've, yeah. That's already one simple buy-in. You've got – got to tell this story. I, um, I was running a modern-day spy kind of game for a group, and I started sending – letters through the actual mail and this is again before the day where email was ubiquitous so he was getting postcards and he was getting letters in the mail from contacts in between the game sessions so that when he would come to the game session he would have new information that he didn't have the week before that's cool, um, but today game. you'd be on a watch list. <laughs> yeah, probably. And I was sending them from weird places. I would send them from work or I would send them from <laughs> a mailbox, you know, a few towns over or whatever. But I was constantly making sure that it looked as authentic for him as it could. Um, and That's uh, and so, yeah, I don't think you could do that nowadays. Some of these this stuff you couldn't do nowadays um, or it just wouldn't make sense nowadays for somebody to receive a letter in the mail unless they, you were playing a – 1930s Cthulhu style game and you wanted somebody to receive a letter in the mail before the game started. Right. Um, we used to play um, a fantasy game uh, where the characters, it was a Lord of the Rings style thing where they had to bring a ring to Mount Doom place. I don't remember yeah. all the names, but we were using the Lord of the Rings risk board and we would play before the game started, we would play one turn of risk and then we would play the campaign and we would keep track of where they were on the map um, so we would know where what kind of armies were around them that session. Nice. Um, and that's so, it, cool. yeah, yeah. And so um, that I don't know if that's atmosphere so much as context, right? You've got this war going well. on all around you, and so the players are involved in the war, but they're um, uh, <laughs> they're they're also trying to move the the ring around on the board. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think I think it's actually both. I think context is. It, you know, I think things that are used for atmosphere it can be very helpful to context. I think that's really why we try to build atmosphere is so that people do have a context for what it is that they're playing. It's, it's some people, they have no problem just sitting there in the middle of you know uh, a game store or a restaurant and have noise all around them and still feel like they're uh, playing something that's uh, you know, cloak and dagger or you know, sword and sorcery and have no problem with it. Other people the more distraction there is from the outside world or the farther they are removed from the setting, the harder it is for them to actually get immersed in it and feel like they're there. So I, I think that atmosphere is actually part of the context and having a map that shows them stuff. I think that's cool. True indeed. Well, you know, one thing that I, I don't know if you guys use, but I tend to use quite a lot uh, and it became incredibly effective when I was playing a Trail of Cthulhu adventure with my friends a year ago, is actually books. Um, we were playing this adventure, uh, Homemade, that was playing in my hometown in the 20s. And I was describing the the scenarios and the scenes around me, but it didn't really gel with them very well and I got a book I have with photographs from the 1920s and, and 1910s from my hometown and just showing them those images with the clothing that the characters were showing you know the people that were photographed it made a huge huge impact in how they actually saw the town and how they they could relate to the whole thing. So I've, I've been using books ever since with lots and lots of images. I like that idea. That's really neat. I think visuals are really do help people, especially for folks like me who don't do abstract particularly well. I, I've i been listening to uh, Monster Hunters International books on audio uh, for a while now. And the guy's clearly a gun enthusiast, and he talks about all these different guns. And I'm thinking, that's cool. I have no idea what any of them look like. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, it's like the guy he he, he spits out the the you know the make and model of the you know of the guns. I Smith and Wesson, I have an idea of, but all these other things, unless it's an AK-47, that's about you know. It's like my my knowledge of being able to hear the name of a particular. Uh, weapon and think in my head what it looks like is pretty darn limited so if i had a visual of it then it would probably be a lot more impressive to me i would know if it's a bfg or or, or not <laughs> uh, so it's i uh, it, i think visuals definitely help especially like i said someone like me who you know abstract not as not as uh, well you know in tuned <laughs> I uh, I ran an old West game back in the day for my friends, and I made all the characters before the the session. It was going to be a one shot, and so um, on the character sheet, I found pieces of art from the internet and I put it on there. And then I found the guns that they were going to be using, and I put them on the character sheets as well. Um, and so when they showed up, they were at everything they're looking at on the table was already thematic and drawing them into the game, and they knew exactly what it was that they were using. Uh, See, you can't do, you, yeah you can't do that all the time well maybe you can if you've got enough time in your hands um I, I think things are different for me now that i wouldn't i wouldn't do that kind of work now but back in the day i i loved doing that kind of work and i had, had the time to do it and the excitement to do it and i i think hopefully people that are listening can at least grab a couple of these ideas 
Well, I think one thing that also it could be helpful with creating atmosphere is involve the players in creating that atmosphere. So and you know, if you feel like, you know, this might be more fun for everybody if we all had an idea of what it is that you're carrying actually looks like, it, that's something that, we, that as GMs, we could ask the players, hey, take five minutes before you head out the door and do a search online and find an image that represents you know, this unusual weapon that you're carrying or this uh, place that your character has come from. And you bring it to us so that it does actually involve them and not just the GM. I, I think a lot of us feel like as GMs, it's our job to carry all the weight of the game and make it as best as we can for the players. And to some degree, that's true. On the other hand, I feel like when we invite the players to take a piece of this themselves, that it helps add the atmosphere and it gets them involved in it. And it makes it a little less work for us. Yeah, I think we're starting to get into that territory, right, of how I love giving the, the players as much authority as they, they want, right, as much responsibility as they want. I think we start getting into that territory of how comfortable does a game master feel giving away that power? Because That's true. Let, let's face it, a lot of game masters get into it so they can be in charge. This is and, true. This is true. There is, um, but there are things, though, that, that you can do, for example, to ask the player to draw their character um, or, for example, one thing I, I do with uh, Call of Cthulhu games and, and Cthulhu-based games, uh, we have a little, well, quite a few little jumble sales around in Brighton, and there is a place that sells old photographs. So it's very easy for me to find photographs of men and women from the 1920s and uh, the early 20th century, and to bring a photograph of somebody and say, this is what my character looks like with the whole Charleston sort of uh, clothes and the whole atmosphere of the 1920s. It, it makes a huge difference as well. You, you're actually truly bringing your character to life just by showing a picture. Right, right. I think, I think um, you get into this weird division of where does role-playing game end and... LARP end, right? How much of it is in your imagination and how much of it needs to be represented ideally right in front of you. And you get into the difference. It's different levels of immersion. So how much of work do you want to be doing on any of these things that we're talking about to to create that mood? Because um, there's really no end, right? There's no real end to how much you can be doing. And I think if you're a GM, you need to pick the three ingredients that that you want to do and that don't turn it into a job right and with that i, I think that it is something that's worth saying is that you know every group is different like i said earlier there are groups that they can be in the middle of chaos and have no problem just getting right into the game and don't even appreciate necessarily any of the atmosphere making details that we've described uh, so far tonight so it, it depends upon who you are as a group of gamers getting together as to whether you even want to build any atmosphere and how far you want to go. But I think that you can, you can take it as lightly or heavily as you want to. You can, you know, you, of course, don't make anybody uncomfortable or your game's not going to be fun. Um, but, you know, looking into things as small as just handwriting a note and as big as 
uh, you know, planning a menu that actually reflects the era. I, I think that there are lots of nuances people can do to their comfort level without having to go overboard or feeling like they're outdoing someone else. I think one of the things we failed to address, right, is setting boundaries too, right? Saying no cell phones or laptops at the table while we're playing. All these distractions that pull you out of the mood of what it is you're playing. No, that's a I, good point. I think a lot of I think a lot of people just sort of tacitly shrug, Oh well, Bob's just that guy that brings his DS to the table and when his character's not doing anything, he goes ahead and plays Mario World. Well, that's really actually not okay for everybody else because while he thinks he's bored, he's actually distracting everybody with that. Um, and that, yeah. that can ruin your mood. And so I know that sounded preachy, but we are talking about what to do right. We should probably also talk about what not to do. Yeah, I, th I think you're right that, you know, having some sort of idea of, okay, what breaks the atmosphere makes a lot of sense too. I, and on top of that, there may be things like, okay, if you, you know, there may be some exceptions for your particular group. If you have someone who's on call and, you know, it's game night, they may not have that option to turn the cell phone off. So what do you do? There are things like just excusing yourself from the table and walking around the corner. Um, you know, just making sure that you're not distracting everybody else who's still playing. Uh, if you're the person who, I, uh, you know, you're the mom and dad and you don't have a babysitter, you know, being able to, ex again, excuse yourself from the table and, uh, handle you know, handle whatever's going on domestically. You know, there are definitely things that we as players and GMs can do to minimize distractions from the table so that the atmosphere isn't completely shattered when something occurs that isn't in-game. Paco, I'm pretty sure it's your turn to say something. Is it because you've left me absolutely speechless with that one? <laughs> Well, I, I've got nothing after that. How am I supposed to? <laughs> I think, Vicky, you've killed it with wisdom. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it when we're talking about games. <laughs> we're killing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the wisdom critical. <laughs> That's how you do it. <laughs> I'm just going to shotgun out a few ideas just to round this out. I had of a friend that watches movies before the game session with friends. They watch a kung fu movie before a kung fu game, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they play a long enough session that they can do that. But they'll they'll gather, watch the movie about what it is they're going to play. So that'll get them in the mood. I had a friend start a game in a graveyard right on top of a, um, a tombstone that was vital to the plot. That's very oh, wow. hardcore. That's very yeah, hardcore. That was, that was really cool. Um, I, I've been in games where, um, um, where uh, you uh, – I'm running. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm losing my thread now. Um, oh. I've been in games before where uh, where people did have to wear either some sort of costume or some sort of affectation for what their character was just so they could be identified from time to time. And okay. I played in large enough groups where um, it was important that you wore uh, – if you're talking about LARPs anyway, it's important that you wear a specific color to represent what faction you're in just so people can know at a distance. Because if you're playing something like Vampire, people would just happen – they would know just on site what kind of faction you would be in. So these sort of things were just helpful tools. So any kind of signifier that you can be using can help in that regard. And I think um, personalized character sheets are great, right? If you're that kind of jam that's keeping track of players' information anyway, personalize right. the character sheets. Use typefaces on the character sheet that the halfling would, would use or the elf would use, right, to make their character sheet look 
different than everybody else's and put filigree on there or a piece of art on there that helps make it to personalize it and all those things because you're staring at your character sheet all game anyway. If you're looking at that boring 3.5 or that boring fourth edition character sheet, that is just dead boring. If you're looking at that while you're playing, hey, I didn't make fun of Shadowrun, I just realized. Show on you. So I'm sure Shadowrun has a boring character sheet too. I haven't seen the new one, but let's just assume it does. Um, I think if you're staring at a boring character sheet all game, that's going to pull you out because you're essentially staring at a spreadsheet nowadays when you're looking at a character sheet. And um, I've made posts about this before too in my on my website talking about how uh, the organization as well as the aesthetics of a character sheet can be really helpful in pulling people into a game and stopping it the game from you don't have to wait so long while they look for the information they need during combat or whatever because they know exactly where they're looking for it. Right. Hmm. Uh, you you spitballing ideas actually made me think of one that uh, we hadn't said either, and that is as a GM, if you're playing and you can hear the weather that are that's outside, if you are able to incorporate the sounds of that weather into your game as you're going, that can also be really quite fun. I it it works well for just the dramatic effect. I I, I will. I will likely never forget a game that my husband was GMing, and it was only him, uh, myself, and one other person. And he had made a statement about uh, one of our, one of the characters' uh, dead brother, or something to the effect, uh, having shown up at the door, and at the same time there was this crack of lightning. <laughs> in real life <laughs> that occurred that was just it couldn't have been timed if he wanted it to be but it added to the drama so well and from that it was kind of like you know that's a cool idea not that he did that intentionally <laughs> but it worked out well but if you are gming and you can you know you hear a storm outside or it's a it, or it's you know such snow that it's blinding out being able to incorporate the idea of the outside weather into the game that you're actually playing can add to the atmosphere as well. I think that uh, brings up another interesting point, um, which is to uh, never read the read aloud text. Figure out what the read aloud text is supposed to be and find a way to convey it in your voice. The players are used to hearing your voice. They're used to hearing you with your regular cadence of ums and uhs and you. It, <laughs> And, and those kind of breaks. And when you're reading something directly out of a book, people shut off. Their brains shut down. They're not listening. And if the mood and atmosphere of the read aloud text is vital to setting the tone for the game, then don't read it out loud. Master it or put it in your own voice and then say it aloud while you're making eye contact. That is so important. I can't even begin to emphasize that. I should have opened with that. That's <laughs> well, how important that is. It's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, one of the guys I do some editing for, uh, Aaron Huss out of Mystical Thread Entertainment, in the things that he writes, he typically says, read or paraphrase the following. Yeah. And that's what he actually puts in his uh, in all of his supplements is read or paraphrase. So even there, he's actually encouraging the same kind of thing you are is, you know, if you can paraphrase it, paraphrase what's here. And I, I feel confident that it's along the, the reasoning you've got that he's said that is, you know, make it yours, make it, you know, you're the GM, make it yours. So I, th- I think that's really neat that I, uh, you know, here I've edited stuff that actually says that and I've got you saying it. I uh, personally, I think I never read exactly what's there even when I'm the one that wrote it anyway. <laughs> so I think it's a good point. Hmm. 
Uh, another piece of advice, if you've got, if you're playing at, I, I don't know if we've talked about this before, playing at a round table versus a rectangular or square table. This has been studied extensively that people at opposite ends of square and rectangular tables are automatically in conflict with one another. Um, so if you have that sort of situation going, make sure you put people across from one another that aren't, aren't already having contentious personalities because it's just going to make things worse for your game. Um, unless, of course, you want that. Unless you're, <laughs> if, if you want that, go right ahead. But round tables are better for cooperation and games where the players should be working together. And rectangular and round tables are better for uh, games with conflict. And if you have a if you if you don't have a round table, what you're telling us is just you know cut off the the corners. Just cut off the corners, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's not my table. I don't care what you do with it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I I think we've uh, come to a very nice natural end to this. I would okay. say. Yeah, I don't think we argued enough, though. No, that's true. That's true. Well, so, we'll have to, we'll just have to try harder next time. Oh, we will. Trust me. And you're all wrong. Uh, <laughs> nope, but never mind that. <laughs> right, uh, in, in that case, uh, listeners, thank you, as always, very, very much for being there. I have been Paco Garcia. And I'm still Vicky Beaver. Yeah, this is Jim. Huzzah! Huzzah! Huzzah? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Production for this podcast has been by Paco Garcia and the music's been composed by Kev Adzet. We would love to hear from you. Feedback and your questions are always welcome and you can email us at podcast.gmsmagazine.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at GMS Magazine. And we are also on Facebook and Google+. I'm very, very happy to talk to you. Remember to subscribe to the GMS Magazine podcast channels in iTunes and give us a review or two and a rating, please, and it's truly appreciated if you do. For more quality shows, remember to listen to other rooms like the RPG Room, the Interview Room and the Board Game Room and more rooms that might be coming very soon indeed. But, friends, until the next time, let the games continue.